I'll be reading from Luke 16, verse 10 through 15. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who would trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who love money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is distasteable in God's sight. I mean distestable. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you, beloved. You know, the last uh, few weeks, uh, this weekend as well as next week, we're talking about stewardship. Um, you know, it's something that Jesus talked about probably more than heaven and more than hell. Uh, so very important topic. And I labeled this one uh, handling worldly wealth because what Beloved just read, Luke 16, 11, Jesus said, if you have not been trustworthy in worldly handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Think about that, Calvary. The Bible said that the way you manage your money influences how much God blesses you spiritually, how much he trusts you with uh, spiritual blessings or these true riches, spiritual power. Jesus, Jesus basically uh, says if you're not responsible with your pennies and your nickels and your dimes and your dollars, you're and you're not responsible with the physical material possessions that God gives you. Then he looks at you and he goes, then I can't trust you with, with these spiritual riches or spiritual truths and spiritual blessing and spiritual responsibilities and spiritual power, not only here on earth, but forever and eternity. So how you manage your money has eternal implications. And it's really, it's a big deal, Calvary. That's why we're spending uh, almost a month um, talking about stewardship and you know, climaxing it with this consecration Sunday as, you know, you wrestle with God. Don't wrestle with me or the budget or any needs, but just wrestle with God and, and the scripture about your estimated giving. In this day of economic uncertainty and fear, even though things are going pretty good now, we need to have wisdom about wealth. And fortunately, the Bible gives us Holy Spirit-inspired truth from the wisest and the wealthiest man who ever lived. His name was Solomon. He was the king of Israel. And he was incredibly rich. And he would put Gil, uh, Bill Gates to shame. This guy, it says, he ate on plates of solid gold. Can you imagine that? That's how wealthy he was. So when he finished dinner, they didn't just have to wash the plates. They had to actually polish the plates, right? I mean, he was extravagantly wealthy. But not only was he the wealthiest man who ever lived, the Bible says that he was the wisest man who ever lived. And in the book of Proverbs, the Holy Spirit had Solomon, King Solomon, write down some wonderful wisdom about wealth. I think that'll bless your life as an individual and bless our lives together as a church. So I want to glean from the book 
of Proverbs, five financial principles that would bless your life. No, and I'm not talking about five fabulous ways to be rich and famous. I'm talking about obedience to the word of God, which is the wisdom of God. God always blesses obedience, always, sometimes materially, but always spiritually. So here it goes. Principle number one, keep good records. You know, you can write that down. You need to know where your money comes from, know where it goes, Proverbs 27, 23, and 24. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds, for riches do not endure forever. One version says, riches can disappear fast. Does everybody agree with that part of the verse? <laughs> riches do not last forever. Obviously, when Solomon wrote this several thousand years ago, most people's assets were all tied up in either sheep or goats or both. And he says, I want you to know the condition of your flocks. Today, he'd say, uh, know the condition of your stocks. Know your assets. Know your bank account. Know your real estate. Know where your assets are in life. Keep good accounting. This is the starting point. You have to be aware of where your money is coming from and where your money is going. Have you ever said to yourself, I just don't know where it all goes? Well, you're already in trouble. It means you're not... Uh, keeping good records, it means that you're violating principle number one about keeping good records. I think there are four facts you need to keep records on, four facts you need to know. Number one, and just fill in the blank, you know, what I own, what I owe, what I earn, and where it all goes. Let me give you a little equation. Ignorance of your financial condition plus easy credit equals disaster. I mean, if you have credit cards and you're not keeping good records, you're headed for big trouble. If you're married, you know, don't keep your spouse in the dark about how much you're making, you know, where it's coming from, where it's all going, you know, all the details. The first principle is keep good records. The Bible says know the condition of your flocks. Keep good records. That's principle number one. Principle number two, uh, plan your spending. This is the principle of budgeting. If you don't have it on paper, you know, at least you have it in your mind. You know, a budget is telling your money where you want it to go rather than wondering where it went, right? And so Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. You know, what's that verse saying? Well, one of the things it's saying is financial freedom is not determined by how much you make. That's one of the biggest myths really in our society some of you think man if i just made a little more just a little bit more a little bit more then i'd be financially free you will not i mean if you can't live on what you're making right now you won't then why because your yearnings will always exceed your earnings you're always going to want more than you make always and if you can't make it on this amount of money you're not going to make it on that amount of money financial freedom is not based on how much you make it's based on how much you spend Financial freedom comes from not making more, it comes from spending less. That means no matter how much money you make, you can be financially free. No matter how much you make, all you have to do is bring your spending in line with your income. And so plan your spending, and you should underline the last four words of that verse. It says, haste leads to poverty. What does that mean? That's referring to what's commonly called impulse buying. Now, I'm more likely to do this than my wife. I thank God for my wife. She is a planner. Let's think about this. I, wanted to, I came home from my brother's, and I said, I want to buy this, this mattress. I like this mattress. Let's buy it like now. 
She says, no, what, I think we should wait a little bit. Okay, okay. okay. So I, I need to practice what I preach. Thank God I have a wife that helps me out. You know, when we act too quickly, you go out and you see something, you know, really uh, cute or, you know, you buy it. You didn't plan to buy it. It wasn't in your budget to buy it. You looked at it and you made this impulse decision. You acted too quickly. Impulse buying is based on emotion. You know, I see it. I want it. It's unplanned. I don't think about it. I'm shopping, so let's get it. You know, all advertising really is trying to get you to buy things now. Now. All of our culture is geared against us. You know, every magazine, every billboard, radio, TV, it says don't plan your spending, look at it, and buy it. I mean, even when you check it, you're at the checkout in the grocery store, they've got all these little things, you know, there that you can look at while you're waiting, and you never thought you needed until you're standing there in line waiting, and you toss them in the cart, and the Bible says don't do that. Plan you're spending. Some of us need to put this verse on our windshield or on our refrigerator door. Proverbs 21, 20. But a foolish man devours all he has. Or another version says, a foolish man, uh, fools gulp theirs down. Another version says, stupid people spend their money as fast as they get it, right? End of sermon, go home. You know, for some of us, that's the only verse that we really need today, right? Amen? You know, how do you break the habit of impulse Buying or overspending, how do you spell relief? Well, you know, B-U-D-G-E-T, you know, budget, right? How do you spell relief? A budget is telling your money where you want it to go rather than wondering where it went. It's planning your spending. It's one of the tests of life. It's, it's kind of an acid test of your character according to Scripture. You know, how do you handle the resources that God gives you? If you want to control your debt, you've got to nip it in the bud jet, right? Ask for God for wisdom and say, God, how do you want us to use our finances? Everything belongs to God, right? According to scripture. We don't own anything. God owns it and we just manage it and that's, that's what's called stewardship. So keep good records, plan your spending. Another principle, principle number three, save for the future. Proverbs 21.20, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. Another version says a wise man saves for the future. So how wise are we? The average family in Japan saves about 20% of their income. The average family in Europe saves about 18% of their income, and in the United States, we spend 1% more than we earn. Any of you, you know, have any, like, aunts visit your home? You know, not, not, not talking about aunts and uncles, but like ants, those creatures, uh, they visit homes and even churches, sometimes in the spring, summer, or fall, those tiny little creatures. Do you know why God sent them into your house? The Bible tells us in Proverbs that ants are supposed to teach us a lesson. And so in Proverbs 6, 6 to 8, it says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander or overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. God is saying, you know, if something with an ant-sized brain can figure it out and figure out it needs to save, how about us? 
Anybody knows this, that saving is important. And anybody would say, of course I know that. I understand that I need to do that. But why don't we? American Demographics magazine shows that most baby boomers will be dead broke in retirement. You know, why don't we save more? Listen to this paragraph from an article in the secular magazine. The article is entitled, The Envy Monster. People risk contracting a bad case of envy. The envy monster stalks everywhere, never satisfied, always craving more of what people have in malls and neighborhoods, schools and offices. People compare themselves with others and invariably all but the very rich, very thin, very beautiful, very small, sm smart fall short in some category. Enough, even for them, enough is not enough. I have a book here. We go to Nicaragua every year, and there's a church down in um, Texas that a lot of people from their church goes, and one of the pastors from this church, his name is Will Davis Jr., and he wrote a book called Enough. And it's, it's finding more by living with less. And on the back it says, our culture pushes us to strive for more. More money, more stuff, more clout, but how much is enough? And how do we know when we have too much of a good thing? Very challenging book. Uh, if you want to borrow it, you can, or just look it up in the internet. Enough by Will Davis, Jr. I must keep good records. I must plan my spending. I must save for the future. And the fourth principle that will bless your life is what we already talked about, and that was last week. Return 10% to God. I mean, this is the principle of tithing, and most professing, professing Christians do not tithe. In fact, a very small percentage of Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, spirit-filled Christians tithe. And Jesus said, where your heart is, or where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And like I, I read last week, Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there might be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will ha not have enough room for it. I mean, think about it, Calvary. We give our waiters and waitresses 15%. We don't think anything of it. And usually they're worth it. And we want to bless them, right? Don't understand, don't misunderstand what I'm Saying, God says, I want the first 10%. If I make 100 bucks, the first 10 bucks goes back to God. Why did God say that? Last week I said, I don't know, beats me. I think he deserves at least what your waiter or waitress gets. I don't know why God said 10%. He could have said 20. He could have said 50. He could have said 90. He could have said, give it all, it's all his. Let's remind ourselves of that, Calvary. You wouldn't have anything. You wouldn't be alive. You wouldn't be breathing if it weren't for God. And so really, everything you have belongs to God. And it's going back to him after you die. He just loans it to you for 60, 70, 80, 90 years. God says, I want you to take the first 10% and give it back to me. So why does he want us to do that? I'm kind of rehearsing what I talked about last week briefly. Obviously, God doesn't need our money Right, He owns a cattle on the thousand hills. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God doesn't need my money. He doesn't need your money. So why does he say give 10%? And we went over three quick reasons. I'm going to do that again this week. It's an act of gratitude. 
hey, Thanksgiving's coming up. You know, and in fact, every week we should enter his gates with thanksgiving. You know, it, it says, God, I just want to remind myself that everything comes from you, and I wouldn't have anything if it weren't for you. And so with this attitude of gratitude, you know, for the past, God, you have been so faithful in my life. And I just take the first part, I take the, the 10%, the tithe, and I give it back to you. It's just a reminder to me that it's all yours, God. And then reason number two, it's an act of priority. Priority in the present. It says, God, you're my number one. And to prove it, I'm putting you first in my money. You may say you love God, but you know, really, it's kind of lip service. Unless you put God first in your money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And then reason number three, it's a statement of faith concerning the future. It's saying, God, I know all those promises that are in the scripture and in your Bible that say, if I put you first, you're going to bless me to prove that. I'm trusting you. I'm going to give to you first. And God says, right, you know, let's have a little giving contest. You give to me, I'll give to you. Let's see who will win. And there's no doubt who's going to win. God wants you to learn to give. You cannot outgive God. And in Malachi, God says, test me. Bring the whole tithe into my storehouse. And I've often said God's tithe is not his way to raise money. He owns it all anyway. God's tithe is his way to bless your heart and to teach us to trust in him. And so he says, bring that whole tithe. Prove me, test me, try me. God is saying, I dare you, I double dare you to trust me, to put me first in your finances. This is what I say, the Pepsi challenge of the, of the Bible that says you can prove God. God says, you want to prove that I exist? Start tithing and watch what happens. He says, I dare you, test me in this, trust me, prove me. You know, when am I supposed to do that? When am I supposed to give back to God? Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, it says, on the first day of the week, that is on every Lord's Day, the first day is Sunday, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. In other words, I give the first part of my money it's like what Roger was saying last week. The first part of my money on the first day of the week as an act of worship. Tithing is an act of worship. It says, I'm given to God on the first day of the week when I come to worship. I come and I give it to you. And I know some of you are going, Dave, you know, I'd like to do this. I just can't afford to. And I, I would say, you know, you can't afford not to as a believer. You want God's blessing in your life? Hey, the best time to start tithing sometimes is when you're in debt. If you want God's help to get out of debt, you got to put him first. You want God to bless your finances, you got to put him first in your finances. Remember last week that 10-10-80 rule? First 10% is the tithe, next 10% I save, and then 80% I live on. 10-10-80. There are more promises in the Bible about money management, about giving and tithing than anything else. Why? Because God wants us to be like him. Again, he doesn't need your money, he just wants you to learn to be generous. And not stingy, because God is a giver. God so loved the world that he what? He gave. And if you're going to be like God, you've got to learn to be generous. God wants you to learn to be a giver. He's more concerned about your heart. He wants you to become like him. Proverbs 3.10, honor the Lord with your wealth, the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing. Your vats will brim over with new wine. God, give God the first fruits, not the leftovers. You put God right on top, and God says, you just watch what happens. 
You're not going to know if God is a liar or not until you try. I challenge you to do that. I challenge you to try. Keep good records, plan your spending, save for the future, return the first 10% back to God, and the, first, uh, the fifth financial principle, and the last one, just enjoy what you have. You know, God's not this big, mean God up in the sky that doesn't want you to enjoy things on earth. Ecclesiastes 6, 9, it says, it is better to be satisfied with what you have than to be always wanting something else. Or another version, better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. Somebody said the problem with contentment is that I always want more, right? Contentment, uh, this is a principle that we violate. I've seen it over and over again. It comes in four phases. The, the first phase is your, your yearnings, yearnings start to exceed your earnings and you start to see things you want and you can't afford them and you say, you know what? I'm gonna go out and get those things anyway. And then immediately comes a second phase. Uh, you get overextended, right, financially. You have more than you can pay for, which immediately results in the third phase. You have to constantly hustle. You know, sometimes we gotta get an extra job. Both husband and wife are working. You have to work at night. You have to constantly hustle to make those ends meet. And then because of that, there's this fourth phase. Your home starts to deteriorate because you're tired and everybody's grumpy and irritable. In this country, we have an epidemic of absentee parents. I mean, a lot of this is because of this very syndrome. You know, our kids don't need any more things. They need parents, amen? Our kids aren't asking for more stuff. What they need more than anything else, what they long for more than anything else is they want attention. They want you, dad. They want you, mom. We're so busy making a living, we don't have a whole lot of time to make a life anymore. We don't have time to give them our attention. We want to. You know, we know it's the right thing to do, but we feel trapped. We feel like, man, there's just no way out. And the truth is, you made the decision that got you into this. Well, you can make some decisions that will get you out. And yes, it's going to be painful, but it's not going to be painful like you've never like you never have time to, to love your kids. It's certainly not as painful as I'm not living the life I know God wants me to live. In Hebrews 13, 5, it says, keep yourselves free from the love of money and be content with what you have. God wants to work in your life today. He wants to rearrange things. Sometimes he needs to wake us up. I know every once in a while I need a wake-up call, but there are two conditions First, you have to do all five of these principles. You cannot pick and choose. You can't say, well, I'm going to tithe, but I'm not going to save anything, or I'm going to enjoy what I have, but I'm not going to keep good records. It doesn't work that way. It's kind of like the Olympic pentathlon. You have to do all five in order to win the award. And not only that, but uh, you have to do them in God's order, because here's the way most people handle their money. And it's all out of whack. First, they earn it. And then they spend it on themselves, whatever they want to enjoy. So they earn it, they enjoy it. And then if they have any left over, then they start repaying their debts. Then if they have any left over from that, they save a little. And then if they have any left over from that, they give some of it. And that is all out of whack. And here is the order that God blesses. First, you earn it. And second, you tithe it. 
You say, God, you're my number one, so the first part goes back to you. Third, you save it. And fourth, you repay it. You set up kind of a repayment plan to pay off all your debts. And then finally, number five, you enjoy it and you spend it on maybe some of those extra items or things or a need that, boom, comes up in your life or maybe somebody else's life. I mean, you're able, if you do it this way, you are able to give more spontaneously and be more spontaneously generous when you do it God's way. I realize people here today are in different financial situations. Some of you are hurting pretty bad. Perhaps no fault of your own. You know, illness, job loss, some major crisis, the economy. As your pastor, I want to pray for you. I want to pray God's blessing on your finances. But first, you've got to do your part. I want you to take the outline home and maybe talk about it over lunch. Do a little self-evaluation. You know, which principles do I need to work on? If you're feeling pressured about your finances and if you find yourself arguing maybe in your family about bills all the time and if you find yourself spending it all and not saving anything, that is a symptom of a much deeper spiritual issue. Out-of-control finances are a symptom of an out-of-control life. And you don't just need a financial planner. You need a life manager. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Maybe you need to cry out to Jesus today and just say, Jesus, I want you to be the CEO of my life, the chief executive officer. From this day forward, I want you to be the CEO. I want you to call the shots. I want you to lead me. I want you to guide me through life. I want you to be the CFO the chief financial officer, as I follow your financial plan. Listen to this cry from Isaiah the prophet, 55 verse 2. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? That's a good question. Is your problem just plain unbelief? Then just ask yourself, do I really trust God? I mean, do I really think that God knows more about how to handle money than I do? Or do I think I know what's best? Am I going to do what he says to do with it? Or am I going to use it the way I want to use it? Do I really believe that God will take care of me if I do it his way? Whatever I trust for my security is my God. Listen to Job 31, 24 and 28. It says, if I have put my trust in gold, I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Another version says, If I put my trust in money, if my happiness depends on wealth, it would mean that I denied the God of heaven. Before we worship God today in our offering time, I want to pray for those of you who are going through a tough time financially for whatever reason. And I want to pray for all of us. So would you just bow your head with me for a minute? Maybe you're saying in your heart, Dave, I am under financial stress right now. Dave, I do want you to pray for me. I just say thank you for your honesty. God bless you. And Father, you know our hearts. 
and I don't know individual situations, but you do. And God, there are a lot of people here this morning who are probably experiencing financial stress and difficulty today. I pray that you would do a miracle in their finances as they follow these principles, your principles, from your book. I pray that you would miraculously turn around their finances. I know it's not going to happen overnight, but would you replace debt and doubt with dedication and determination? Would you replace pressure with peace? Would you just help them, God, to get out of the hole and onto your pathway to financial freedom so that they can be generous people the way you want them to be and the way they want to be, God? Now, maybe you might want to pray something like this in your heart. Father, I, I want to follow your financial plan the rest of 2018 and on into 2019. Forgive me, God, for the times I've spent more than I've made. Forgive me for unwise purchases. Today, I want to commit myself to your financial plan and principles. With your help, God, I'm going to start keeping better records. I'm going to plan my spending, and with your help, God, I'm going to save some for the future, like the little ants, and I'm going to put you first in my finances by returning the tithe back to you. Help me to enjoy, God, what I have, and to be content, and to be more generous, and to give more sacrificially. Jesus Christ, I invite you not only to be my savior, to forgive me of all my sins as I repent and turn from my idols to the living God, but I invite you to be the manager of my life, the Lord of my life. I want to trust you, God, with my finances and my future. And it's in your name that I pray. On the bottom of page 574, you don't have to turn to that, but it's right after the hymn. It says, it's a, it's a prayer for the renewal of the church. It says, renew your church, Lord, your people in this land. Save us from cheap words and self-deception in your service. In the power of your spirit, transform us and shape us by your cross. Amen.